try to make some adjustments on the fly because it is 11 o'clock and I'm aware that your attention spans are shortening as we, as we speak. Um, no one disagrees with that. Um, and so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. We're six weeks into our series on the book of Revelation, looking at uh, this amazing vision that John has right in the beginning of the book of Jesus. And Je- Jesus is, is kind of moseying through the various churches, and he's complimenting all of them, and most of them he's rebuking at the same time. This is kind of how God likes to do. If God ever comes to you and says, I'm really blessed by the way you're doing this or that, um, I'm starting to feed back because I'm just going to get louder. If God ever says that to you, just brace yourself because he's just, he, he's getting your heart open and relaxed so that he can tell you, but I'm sort of not, what I have against you is this. This is, what he, this is the pattern of these verses, all right? And so the church in Thyatira is no different. Now, Last week we were looking at Pergamum, and Pergamum had, Jesus talked about Balaam. They were following Balaam, and Balaam is not living at that time. He's been dead for centuries. So Balaam is a type, okay, a type of person, a type of temptation, it's probably more accurate to say, against the church, and they are buying into it completely. And it's the very similar temptation to the church in Thyatira with one key difference, which I'll show you at the end, Okay. In Thyatira, he says, you're following Jezebel. Jezebel has also not been alive for a very long time. Okay, so Jezebel is a type. So in order to understand what he's after, what he's saying, we've got to know Jezebel's story. Okay? Um, and and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of fuzzy history in church history, especially modern church history, about Jezebel. All right? I won't ask for a show of hands of how many women in here have been ever accused of being a Jezebel. I won't, I won't ask. That, that name has been misused in many, many, many ways, okay? So hopefully I'll clarify some of that this morning too, all right? So we're going to start actually, well, first I'll read the first little bit of Revelation 2, then we'll go back to Jezebel and kind of retell that story, okay? So Revelation 2, chap- verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. He says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, that's great. They're actually doing better now than they did when they started. They're they're, they're doing more in the community They're loving each other more generously. Um, They're doing more good works now than they did when they started out as a church. The rebuke against some of the other churches was, you started off great, but you lost your first love, and I'm going to come and take my presence from you, right? So that's a pretty good compliment. I would like for Jesus to say that about us, wouldn't you? uh, There's been a trajectory of improvement over time, right? Isn't that good news? In fact, I think we look at this church and say that we have a lot to learn from them. They sure are getting a lot done in the community. But we all know what's coming. But I have this against you, right? We know that phrase is coming, and it's exactly right. So let's stop there. We'll go back to Jezebel's story, and then we'll read the rest of this text so we can understand it. Her story can be found really spread out across 1 and 2 Kings. We will not be reading all of 1 and 2 Kings. 
I'll be summarizing a lot. Okay? So, Jezebel was married to a man named Ahab. Ahab is as important in Jezebel's story as Jezebel is. She was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Tyre and Sidon. His name had Baal in it. All right? Ethbaal was also a priest of Baal. Baal worship was a really disgusting pagan cult that used sexual immorality, public lewdness, sensuality, sexual degradation, self-mutilation, and at times even human sacrifice, all as forms of worship to Baal. This is the stuff that horror movies are made of, this false religion, this cult. And the, this King Ahab was a priest of that kind of worship. He was sort of the leader of that sort of worship. Not a good guy. His daughter was Jezebel. Okay? In 1 Kings 16.31, it tells us that Ahab, Israel's king, okay, Israel's king marries Jezebel. We already can tell that's a bad idea. Because Jezebel is all in on this whole Baal thing. Okay? Jezebel then manipulates Ahab, who is a weak leader. He is weak and pretty much useless. Okay? Easily manipulated. She begins to manipulate him and bring Baal worship not only into the, the leadership uh, into the household of Ahab, but she propagates Baal worship across the entire nation and ushers in maybe the darkest time in Israel's history. She was infamous in Israel and still is. There were two defining events, I think, for Jezebel. We could talk about more. We could tell her entire story. I'm not going to do it. But I see really two events that kind of tell us who she is in sort of a short shorthand kind of way, okay? One is the, what I'm calling the destruction of Naboth. A righteous man named Naboth owned some land that was adjacent to that of King Ahab, okay? He had nice vineyards, grew really great grapes. And Ahab, the king, who pretty much has everything, he looks over and he's really jealous of his neighbor's property, Right? That neighbor who's got the nicer house than you or the nicer lawn than you. I mean, I don't really care about lawns, but apparently some people do. I mean, the more fertilizer you put on it, the more you got to mow it. So why are you doing that? But <laughs> Naboth had the perfect lawn. And he's jealous and he wants this. So he goes to Naboth and he says, hey, I want to buy your property from you. And I'll pay you like a really great price. I'll pay you a lot of money for this property. Naboth says no rightly says no, because this land was his inheritance from his forefathers. And that's against God's law. God says in Leviticus, do not sell your inheritance. And this is Naboth's inheritance. He says, no, I can't do it. As tempting as it is, thanks for the offer, no thanks. Ahab, being who Ahab is, goes home and whines. It actually describes him in bed with Jezebel laying there going, huh, it's not fair, I'm the king and everything, and he won't even sell it to me. It's not fair. I even offered him more than it was worth. <laughs> He's whining. What does Jezebel do? First thing she does is she mocks him. She makes fun of him, mocks him laying in his own bed, mocking the king. Say, what kind of king are you? 
You're the king. We're going to just, 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 just destroys him in the bed, making fun of him. And then she says, I'll do it for you. I'll get that property for you. And what she does is right out of a soap opera. She goes and she gets some wicked people, um, pays them off to go and sit next to Naboth at a big party that she throws. And publicly at this party, they begin to accuse him of various things and drag his name through the mud so that everyone believes as these two false witnesses sitting there at the table in front of the whole town, everyone there at this party, they destroy his reputation. And then based on that false witness, she orders him to be stoned, taken out of the town and stoned. And not only him, but all of his heirs, all of his sons are also stoned and killed. Now, what does that mean? That means that the property that Naboth had now defaults to the king, and he gets the property. Jezebel never lifts a finger against them. She just manipulates and controls everybody to destroy this man and his family just so she could get the property for her husband after she mocks him for it. It wasn't out of love for him. It was to, to say, say to him, I'm the one that runs this house, not you. I'm the real king, right? The second story is a little bigger. It's Jezebel and Elijah is the one probably she is famous for. This is the second defining event that tells us who she is. It's very soon after her marriage to Ahab, she, she used to control and manipulate and gain authority to chase down every edifice of worship to Yahweh in the country and replace that with a temple or an altar of worship to Baal. She systematically goes through the nation and finds every altar of worship, every place of worship, and just doesn't just tear it down. She replaces it with a pagan place of worship to Baal. The problem is, Israel has prophets. And what do prophets do? Their primary function is to say, don't forget God. Remember God. And so they are not happy. If you want to, to replace true worship with false worship, you've got to destroy the prophets. So she goes and chases down all the prophets and starts killing them, just flat out murdering them. Very bold. Kills all of them except for about 100 who are now hiding in caves who are basically now useless except for Elijah. Elijah ain't hiding in no cage, right? So she hates Elijah the most and becomes obsessed, really obsessed with killing him because he confronted her publicly. So Elijah demanded a contest. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 18 on Mount Carmel between Yahweh and the powers of Jezebel and the priests of Baal. If you Grew up in church, you saw this story in, uh, in your Sunday school lessons at some point. Um, I still remember the little picture Bible I had with the little altars drawn in it. He called 450 prophets of Baal from Jezebel's camp to meet him by himself on Mount Carmel. So picture it. You got this mountain, this sort of big hill, right? And you've got 450 prophets of Baal there. Probably looking pretty creepy and weird. And then there's just Elijah. And they build an altar. And he says, you guys get a cow, I get a cow. We put some wood on top of the altar. You put your cow on top of that, and, but no fire. And you call and ask Baal to set 
your worship offering on fire. And the God who answers by fire, he's God, right? It's a contest. It's bold. 1 Kings 18, 20 to 29 is the story. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And here's the key. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood. Put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will come to call upon the name of the Lord. I love that. Lord Yahweh, the Lord of lords, God of gods. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many. Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, because Baal doesn't exist. Right? And they limped around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them. This is my favorite part of the story. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. That's, in, that's not right there. I just read it. I'm not making that up. You can't, I can't get in trouble for it. I read it in the Bible, right? Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. What's the problem, guys? Maybe just give him some time. I think, I think maybe he's just out, right? And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out, of, out upon them. And as, a, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Because Baal doesn't exist. So then, of course, Elijah wastes no time. He says, okay, it's my turn. Time's up. My turn. He rebuilds the altar, puts his bull on it. Then he says, you know, I'm going to go a step further. And he digs a trench around the altar, and he has servants bring four big jars of water three different times and pour the water over the altar, saturating that dead bull the wood, the rocks, and filling the trench with water around it, okay? Just making it really, really hard to burn, all right? If you've ever tried to start a fire with wet wood, it's sort of impossible. This is what happens, verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust 
and licked up the water that was in the trench. There's just nothing left. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. I'd say that's a victory. So despite this astounding victory, Jezebel promises not to repent, but to kill Elijah. And he flees to the desert. There's this great sad story of Elijah. And he's so afraid of Jezebel at this point. And I, he's pretty bossed in this story. But moments later, he's fleeing in the desert, sitting on the, just starving, going, God, just kill me. I'd be better off dead, just take me home. It's the power of Jezebel to take even Elijah and dismantle his confidence to where he wishes he was dead. But God in his mercy comforts Elijah, feeds him, restores him in the end. It's a wonderful story. If you're ever depressed, it's a great one to read. So Jezebel becomes infamous for having tremendous power without any title. This is what she wants. She wants the influence and the power and the authority, but she doesn't want the responsibility that the title brings. She doesn't want to be king. She, she says to Ahab, oh, I don't want to be king. I don't like titles. But she sits next to the king, and she manipulates him every day to do what she wants, and she has the power of that position. She becomes famous for sexual immorality, idol worship, all the things that Baal worship was known for, she was known for, okay? And then she leads Israel into those things as well. She is characterized by a thirst for power without responsibility, manipulation and control of those in authority, sexual immorality, idolatry, and an unwillingness to repent. Can you imagine being unwilling to repent after seeing that display of God's power where fire comes out of heaven and consumes not just the offering, but everything under the offering. And still you won't repent. I've known people like that, that have seen the glory of God and experienced his presence and still refuse to repent. She is the prime example of what a hard heart looks like in Scripture. Jezebel cannot be fruitful when there is the exercise of power, of proper God-given authority. Jezebel needs an Ahab. Were it not for Ahab, Jezebel wouldn't have been able to do what she did. If Jezebel had tried her mess with somebody like David, David would it would have been over. It was Ahab's unwillingness to exercise his God-given authority that allowed Jezebel to be fruitful and practically destroy worship in Israel. When there is weak leadership, there will be a Jezebel in the wings. Promise you, right? Exercising your authority is also how you get rid of her, and we'll see that in just a minute. All right, that's very quickly the background of Jezebel. Let's come back to Revelation 2, verse 20. 
So this is Jesus talking to the church in Thyatira again. He says this, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. So Jezebel here obviously is a symbol of a type of temptation or maybe even a type of person, okay? Because Jezebel's not alive here. This is preparing you, by the way, for how you interpret the idea of the Antichrist, okay? As a type, as a symbol, right? So Jezebels don't have to be women, first of all. In fact, the, the, as I've been rethinking about my own history and experience with such people, the two worst Jezebels I've ever experienced in my life were both men. Just the worst were men. So it doesn't have to be a woman. It's a type. Jesus calls her Jezebel because she was doing all the Jezebel-y things. Right? You really remind me of Jezebel. Stop acting like Jezebel. Right? The congregation in Thyatira is Ahab. What does he say to them? What's his rebuke to them? It's not just that Jezebel, he's not just rebuking Jezebel and those connected with her. He is rebuking them, but he says to the church that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. That's his rebuke. That's what's, that's what's different about Thyatira from Pergamum. Is their tolerance of this in their community, in their church. So the congregation there is Ahab. And Jesus rebukes them for allowing Jezebel to almost destroy the church. If it were not for Jesus' intervention and putting Jezebel on the sickbed, then this church would have been destroyed. And everybody's just standing around shrugging their shoulders saying, I don't want to get involved, it's none of my business. They know what she's doing. She continues to refuse to repent and they do nothing, they shrug their shoulders and just fail to use the authority God's given them. So I think this is one, it's convicting for any of us who are in this church who are in leadership. But I also want to point out that everybody in this room has authority over something. Everybody in this room has authority over something in your life. God's given it to you. And if you fail to exercise that authority, there will be a Jezebel waiting to use it for you and destroy the thing that God's given you. You have authority over your family, your children, whatever, God's, whatever sphere of influence God's given you, you have authority over it. And if you sit there and just hold it and go, well, I don't want to, who am I? Who am I to go do that? There will be somebody there who will say, I'll do it. I don't want the title. I don't like titles. 
I don't want that kind of responsibility, but I would love to have influence and power. If you refuse to exercise the authority God's given you over your family, I've seen this. I think it's one of the main reasons why men end up committing adultery, is it starts with that. She doesn't listen to you. I listen to you. No, your wife doesn't understand you. Your kids don't respect you. I respect you. That is Jezebel saying, let me, let me have a place that I don't, haven't, don't deserve and has not been given me by God. Let me have it. I don't want to marry you. I don't want that kind of responsibility. I just want to help you. <clears throat> I think this leads us, obviously, into a discussion about church discipline. Because it's not just enough to not be Jezebel. It's tempting to preach this that way. Don't be Jezebel. Don't do that. And don't, and don't let her do her thing around you. But it's not just enough not to be Jezebel or be tempted by her. Simply tolerating her presence in the church is also sinful. Tolerating her presence in your life. And by her, I just mean whoever that might be a man. Okay? Church discipline is what we call the process of keeping each other accountable to acting and living like a Christian. Simple as that. It's very unpopular. Just that whole concept makes us feel like, I don't know, should you be saying that out loud? Because this feels like it goes directly against the concept of tolerance. The world tells us tolerance is the ultimate value, right? And it comes from a good place. <clears throat> we want everybody to get along. We want to have unity. That's a godly desire. But the only unity the world can offer us is unity around the lowest common denominator. It's unity at the expense of truth. Go read the statement of faith from the Unitarian Universalist Church. It is a trip. It is a statement about not having a statement. It's a, it's a belief statement about not believing anything. And everyone gets along. You go hang out with a Unitarian and no one's offended. Because unless you say you read any of this, Revelation 2 stuff. So just like we fence the table at communion, we say, if you're not a believer, you don't take communion because it's not for you. It makes no sense. It's fenced off. Jesus draws a line there. The same thing is true of the church. We fence it off. It is an exclusive club. You have to be a Christian. Now, we want everybody to be a Christian. That's not exclusive. Anyone who believes gets to be one. All right? But you got to be one to be in. So in order to be a member of Living Hope Church, we would say you must not only profess to be a Christian, but you must be committed to acting like one. Even when you don't act like one, you have to be committed to acting like one. That's why I said it that way. If you notice, even with Jezebel, who's doing these horrible things in this church in Thyatira, Jesus says, I've given her a chance to repent. I've been very patient. He, it's a wonder he didn't just light her up. I mean, this is the God who answers by fire, right? He's like, I've seen her before. I know how to deal with her. I'll just whoosh. 
And instead he says, you know what, I'll just, I'll be patient. It's the lack of repentance that's the problem. It's not the sin. Nobody's going to say to you, at least in this church, I can't believe you sinned. Out you go. Not going to do that. That's not what Jesus is saying. But if you say, this isn't sin. I'm just doing this. All y'all are wrong. I don't believe that. This is fine. I'm doing it anyway. Then we have a problem, right? One of the theories about that phrase where he talks about the deep things of Satan, it's a weird, strange, strange phrase. Is it what he's doing there with Jesus? Because he does this, the same thing when he talks about the synagogue of Satan. Like you say you're a synagogue of God. I say you're a synagogue of Satan because you're persecuting my people, right? He's doing the same thing, that the claim of Jezebel, one of her tools is to say, I know the deep things of God. And he says, no, you don't. You know the deep things of Satan. If that's true, and part of what she's doing, she's saying, I'm very deep. I know mysteries about God that you don't understand. And if you would just incorporate some of this Baal worship into your worship, you would know the real deep things of God. Setting herself up as someone who understands mysteries about God. And the truth is, her life, what she does, is utterly sinful. And all of those around her are just shrugging their shoulders and tolerating it. So it's the repentance that's the issue here. Falling into sin is not what would get you disfellowship from LHC. It would be refusal to acknowledge sin as sin and turn away from it that would result in that. Interestingly enough, Ahab repents. He repents. And to, to my chagrin when I'm reading the story, because I get mad at Ahab, God forgives him. And it seems sort of unfair. It's like he should get it. He's like Adam, standing there letting Eve eat the apple, going, mm, mm, whatever. Ahab repented, God forgives him. In 1 Corinthians 5, we have this crazy similar story, and Paul rebukes the church. There's a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. And I don't mean napping. He is sleeping with his mother-in-law, and Paul hears about it. Everybody's kind of going, mm, I don't know what we can do about it. None of my business. I don't want to judge. And Paul says, kick him out. Not even the pagans would tolerate. He uses that word. Not even the pagans would tolerate something like this in their community, yet you tolerate it. It is not Christian love to do that. He actually says, turn him over to Satan. This makes us uncomfortable. But the truth is, Jesus is Lord over the church, right? He's king, and he has expectations. He's not mean. He just has expectations. And he expects us to follow him. And we, when we not only come into the church and don't, aren't committed to trying to kind of live according to how he wants us to live and follow him and grow in holiness right, and grow in relationship with each other, we come in and we begin to destroy that thing, you quickly get on the wrong end of his stick. 
because he, he's fiercely protective of his bride and his church. This is so countercultural, isn't it? The idea that Jesus loves me but also has expectations. That he died for me, yet he wants my life. It's the two-edged sword of grace, as Tim Keller calls it. It's my favorite quote. On one side, it's just warm and fuzzy and just, he loves me and has, he just, he, no matter what I do, he's going to love me anyway. He's going to forgive me and it's just this wonderful thing. And then he comes and he goes, but I want all of it. Your life belongs to me. I gave everything for you and I'm taking all of it. Now it's good. He has good plans. But sometimes he drains the swamp, right? And you're like, I'd rather have uh, enjoyed that swamp. The swamp served a wonderful function. It hid all the crud on the bottom. That's kind of why we have a swamp. He has expectations. And he's serious about this community. I think it's one of the themes of Revelation is that the church is kind of a big deal. Not kind of. It's a very, very big deal. And it's worth dying for. And it's worth um, protecting and preserving. It's worth tending to. It's worth it. We need to take it seriously. And what we do and how we live affects it. So it's not just important how we handle our own sin. It's also important how we handle the sins of others. We have grace, forgiveness, humility. You ought to be willing to say to your friend, hey, that's not cool. In a very humble non-arrogant, non-judgy way. Hey, I know where you're coming from. I've been there too, and I might be there tomorrow, but you and I both know acting like that's not okay. How can I help you? That's a godly thing to do. That's what church discipline is, by the way. Church discipline is not what happens when the elders have to get together and talk about what we're going to do about this person. That's when church discipline has failed. And we're having to put a fence up. We don't want to have to put that fence up and say you're outside the fence. Church discipline is when a friend says to a friend, I don't think, why, why do you talk to your wife that way? Why, why do you do that? How, is there something going on? Can I help you? What? Right? That's church discipline. We don't want to do that. We just want to be buddies and have everybody get along and just have the lowest common denominator of agreement, which might be, you know, craft beer or sports or golf. I don't know who plays golf. I don't know if somebody in here probably plays golf. Wives are pointing at their husbands right now. It's pretty funny. But that's lowest common denominator stuff, isn't it? You know, the Unitarians can do that. This is supposed to be something different, a prophetic witness to the culture that says we're different and we live differently. So however, if we love each other, if we will be willing to correct one another lovingly, humbly, and patiently, and if we love Christ and his church, we will be willing to protect it from false teachers, Jezebels, and Balaam's, and we won't tolerate them, all right? All right. I'm out of time. I promised. It's been 35 minutes. Why don't you stand up? I'm going to pray for you.
So I want to pray for a couple of things. One is um, if anyone here is currently being um, wrecked by a Jezebel, male or female, uh, I just want to, I want to pray not just that God would get rid of the Jezebel, but he would have, let you understand and exercise your God-given authority in whatever area that is, okay? Might be work, might be family, might be a church, somewhere else. That God would show you what it looks like to, be, to use the authority he's given you, to go to war for your kids, or to go to war in prayer. That's what I mean by war, right? I don't mean go get a spear. I mean in prayer for your kids, or wherever that place is, okay? But also that God would protect our church. Because <coughs> I've, I've been there, and I'm thankful for strong leadership in this church. I really am. And it's protected us many times from this sort of thing. But I want to ask God to continue to do that. Because I think this is one of the main attacks of the enemy against churches that are, have momentum. If he sends somebody to go, what you really ought to do is, not what we should do, but what you should do is this, and begins to manipulate and sow dissension. So I want to pray for those two things, and then we'll worship together. God, first I pray for anyone here that is just being um, manipulated, Lord, would you fill them with not confidence in themselves, but confidence in your calling, confidence in you, and confidence in your authority, your name, the name of Jesus. God, they would exercise and use the authority that you've given them. God, make us a church that is faithful to you, that worships only you, that doesn't bring in um, the influences and the idolatry of the world into our midst. God, make us pure and clean that you would say of us that our current works exceed our former. And God, that you would protect this church from Jezebel's influence. Strengthen us, Lord Jesus. God, I pray for healing for those who have um, in the past had just been a run over like a freight train by this kind of attack, by this kind of manipulation. People who have had jobs and even entire ministries taken away from them because of it. God, would you bring healing and restoration? Bring them to a place of safety and covering. In the name of Jesus, amen.